Welcome to Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Snell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, I'm Carolyn Ford. Today, I get to welcome Dr. Stephen McGill, Vice President of Product Innovation at Sonatype, and he's going to share his insights on the evolving landscape in open source security threats, the growing response in regulations for software management, and how to be SBOM ready. And I'm going to ask him about Log4j. I mean, we're a year in and it's still a huge problem. So welcome to Tech Transforms, Stephen. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Well, it's really good to have you. And I'd like to start off with just tell us about what you do and um, what Sonotype is all about. Yeah, sure. So I'll start with Sonotype. Um, we're a company that focuses on open source governance uh, and software security. Um, we have been uh, really one of the original companies focused on helping uh, companies and other organizations, government organizations and so forth, um, get control of their software supply chain, uh, monitor it continuously um, so that they can be aware of vulnerabilities that are discovered in open source. Um, this is a major source of vulnerabilities and exploits and you know, uh, leading to data exfiltration and, and so forth. And um, and so that's that's sort of our bread and butter, our core core uh, focus area. Uh, we also do a uh, number of uh, things having to do with general software security and software quality. Um, and so that's uh, that's sort of my domain. Uh, I founded a company called MuseDev uh, that created a product that was uh, a code scanning product to help developers um, write better, higher quality, higher reliability, more maintainable software. Um, so Type acquired that company a couple of years ago, and so. Um, we've merged that into our product suite. It's called Sonatype uh, Developer now. And um, and what I've done since then is I've shifted over uh, to a research role, uh, leading a team of uh, researchers and engineers that are developing sort of the next generation of technology. Um, again, focused on code analysis, code quality. Uh, you know, what can we tell you about your software? What can we tell you about the open source that's going into your software uh, to help you uh, manage risk and uh, and be more secure? And so uh, I've been in that role now for uh, a little over a year, um, and it's yeah, it's really exciting. I get to um, I get to interact with uh, folks in industry and government, um, try and stay on top of what the current needs are to predict, you know, what's coming in the future, what's going to be important, and make sure that we're developing technology to address those future risks. You just answered or relieved some anxiety that I have had for a long time because every time I hear open source and it being used really anywhere, but especially in government, I'm always like, I, I think that seems like a bad idea to crowdsource code. And how <laughs> do you make sure that it's safe to use? And so thank you. You just literally relieved yeah. some anxiety for me. <laughs> so and glad to help. Yeah. Let, so let's talk about open source and how it's being used in the federal software supply chains how um, prolific is it i mean how are you seeing it being used and and secured yeah so open source is uh, very common in the federal space uh, really i think just as common as it is in the rest of the commercial space um we see you know depending on the survey you look at it's something between 80 and 90 percent of 
modern software applications consist of open source. Um, you know, the the way a developer builds a project now is, you know, you go find the open source libraries that do what you need to do. You know, they interact with the APIs that you need to interact with. Um, they help you store data in various formats, JSON, XML, you know, go, go through the file system, do machine learning. You know, there's libraries for every sort of core piece of functionality that you might need. Um, and then the developer is is sort of writing the, the code that glues all that together and layers business logic on top of that and addresses, you know, your organization's particular uh problem problem needs. Um, and so that open source is a big part of part of your software. And it's an important uh, risk vector to to maintain to maintain awareness of. And, um, you know, it's sort of a double edged sword. So like you're, <laughs> you're bringing in a lot of functionality, and it really helps modern development happen much faster. Um, you benefit from all the community's work uh, in that project. Uh, but then you are in a sense, inviting all these developers into onto your team you know your, your team isn't just the developers that you're can paying anybody and managing contribute, day -to -day. Like anywhere in the world can anybody contribute to open source software that that is the ideal and it is it's basically achieved you know by most of these projects they're very open they'll accept uh, code contributions from anywhere um and that's not to say that everything is just accepted without review um okay you know that it's um yeah the like open source projects generally do try to have a very stringent code review process, uh, have various controls in place. Um, and there are organizations like the Open Source Security Foundation that are working with the community to up-level further, right? And make sure that um, especially critical open source projects really are following best practices when it comes to um, code review, looking into, you know, who's making this change, what is the change, making sure, you know, there's more than one person signing off on that, uh, scanning the software to look for vulnerabilities, uh, making sure that their dependencies are up to date and they aren't bringing in open source risk from the open source projects that they use, because, you know, there's several layers here. An open source project will itself use other open source projects. Um, and so that all helps. Um, but we still have seen some issues with malicious actors contributing to open source projects. And in fact, that sort of attack vector has been growing uh, a lot recently. So around 730% growth year over year uh, for each of the last three years uh, in these sorts of malicious supply chain attacks. And so this is malicious actors really creating their own opportunities by yeah. either becoming trusted contributors and getting, you know, sneaking a code change into an open source repository or um, exploiting sort of the trust models or lack thereof for package management systems. So things like NPM for JavaScript or PyPy for Python, um, these are pretty open uh, ecosystems. And so uh, you can just upload a package, say, you know, hey, I'm creating this new package and, and put it up there. And, um, you know, if it has a name that's very close to a legitimate package, uh, you know, like say, it's byte underscore array instead of byte dash array, you know, and so it's like a very <laughs> easy mistake for a programmer to make when they're adding that dependency. You can take advantage of those typos and um, and sort of get uh, people to use your malicious package uh, and uh, and sort of get into the supply chain that yeah. way. If I were a bad guy, that's exactly what I would do. <laughs> but you're yeah. you're telling me before it makes the library, there's a lot of security gates that it has to go through. So there's a review board. Yeah. That gets it in. There's, and then once the agency decides to use it, they also do their own security checks. Well, um, so it depends on the project. Um, but yeah, usually there is an approval process, a code review process and an approval process um, that uh, in 
at least some cases involve scanning, but it's, it's very project by project. Um, Hmm. there are, uh, what do you mean? Wait, 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 what do you mean project by project? So you're telling me that some projects don't do a review before they use the code. Don't say that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, there are certainly projects out there, um, that end up playing a critical role in software stacks uh, that are maintained by a single individual who's, you know, sort of doing it as a side project or maybe hasn't even touched it in in a couple of years. Um, And it's still included as a dependency in code that's being used widely. But not in the federal government, right? Uh, Surely not. Surely not. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're just placating me. Okay. (laughs) So that's horrifying. Um, Talk about some of the security threats that we're facing, uh, particularly, I guess, in open source. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the what that that I just mentioned is certainly one, Um, you know, these projects like I think the level of trust in the community and these larger foundation supported projects is probably pretty high, Um, you know, projects that are part of. Uh, the Linux Foundation or the Apache Foundation, um, you know, they put uh, pretty robust governance structures in place and they help projects uh, include code scanning and things things like that, follow best practices. Um, like how big are these the, foundations, though? I mean, like how many people? Because if, if you're getting code from coders all over the world, how can they possibly review everything? Uh, yeah, well... Um, it's sort of peer-based review. So when um, a code change gets submitted to a project, uh, other developers of that project that are um, contributing regularly to that code base uh, will review it and say, okay, you know, this looks good or, oh, you should fix this. Uh, you know, have you considered this edge case? You know, that could lead to a problem. And so um, that's, it's a really important process for ensuring quality and security. Um, you catch a lot of issues there if you have a robust code review process. Um, but like I said, not every project does that, that doesn't catch everything, you know, so you really want layers of security, right? You want to be doing that. You want to be using code scanning tools. Um, and then you want to be doing other things like, uh, signing your releases, right? Because, um, okay, you do all this code review, you package it up into this official binary or jar or, you know, source distribution or, or whatever you put that up in the package repository, um, if a developer then pulls that dependency down, you want to be able to verify, yes, this is the version of this package that was built by the maintainers that is official, that has gone through all of those checks. Um, because otherwise, uh, you know, you could end up with, uh, with a copy that's altered, you know, again, by a malicious actor. Um, there's various mm. ways to, you know, to inject that into your builds chain. And so, um, the, more checks. You, you always want sort of layer defense in depth, you know, layers of security. And that applies to software supply chain, just like it applies to uh, security architectures and things like that. Okay. Yeah. So how has the landscape of software supply chain security changed since you got into this business? Yeah. Um, so I think the biggest shift is this re- recent one that I mentioned earlier of, um, attackers creating their own opportunities. So the traditional software supply chain attacks that have been going back to like the beginning of time or like the beginning Mm -hmm. of software time um, involve uh, 
I hopefully security researchers, but you know sometimes hackers um, uh, identifying vulnerabilities that are just latent in software. Like you know, all software has bugs. Some of those bugs end up being security relevant, uh, and so they can be leveraged to gain access to a system, uh, execute commands you shouldn't be able to execute, gain privilege, exfiltrate data, things like that. And so there's uh, you know there's some chance if if a security researcher or a hacker spends enough time with a code base and you know they're sort of banging on the software in various ways, there's some chance they'll discover something that they can exploit, something that gives them a toehold from an attack perspective. Um, and so most uh, vulnerabilities traditionally sort of came from that that sort of work. Um, <clears throat> but then more and more we've seen attackers creating their own opportunities and and introducing malicious code into people's build uh, build processes. And that, like you said, it's uh, if you were an attacker, if I were an attacker, you know that's that's what I do. That's the low-hanging fruit right now. There's not a lot of protections in place to guard against this. Uh, and so, and you can tell that there's not a lot of protection because the sophistication of these attacks is very low. You know, it's, it's things like, uh, uploading packages that have a name very close to an existing package to, you know, they, we call that typo squatting, you know, you're taking mm -hmm. advantage of the fact that some percentage of developers will, will, you know, fat finger the, the, the name of this package. And, um, and you can just sort of blast a bunch of those up on, onto these repositories. And how many are um, of, like that is slipping through? Like, is that the 700% that you told me? Like they're slipping yeah. through and actually making it into the libraries? They make it into the libraries for, for a period of time. Um, and so we uh, have developed technology to, to identify this and block this. And so there's, you know, there's products out there, technologies you can deploy to, um, to recognize those sorts of attacks and block suspicious looking on the, packages on the user side. So once the agency on the side, chooses yeah. to use something from the library, then they need to do their own checking to, to look for the malicious code. Yeah. It lets you, it lets you put in place a protection sort of at the border of your network. So mm. what a common sort of architecture for build pipelines at large organizations is you have um, what's called a caching repository that you run locally, and what this does is it um, it when you when a developer is building some application and it needs you know these five open source packages, it goes to those and say they're Python packages, and so they live at the PyPy repository. It goes out to PyPy, it pulls those five packages, but then it it stores them locally. So then the next developer who's using those packages just gets it from the local cache. So you don't have to always be going back to the source. And so it's an efficiency thing. It makes builds faster, uh, but it also gives you a great point uh, to enforce policy. So you can sort of centrally deploy this policy that says, okay, we're not going to let you use packages that have critical vulnerabilities. We're not going to let you use packages that look suspicious, you know, things that were just uploaded to the repository that have a name very close to an existing package, you know, things like that. Um, if you you can put technology in place at that, uh, at that border um, mm, that will so, protect you against this. So yeah. maybe agencies or, well, so would coders and agencies, not everybody, not every developer could go access the open source software library as a whole. What they would access is whoever had the authority to go pull things down from the library on their local cache. Then they can access from the local cache. Is that mm -hmm. true? That's right. Yeah, and you can automate all of this so that um, you know approved packages can just automatically, just automatically get come fetched, to the cache. Know? And you're sandboxing yeah. and doing the vulnerability testing in this sandbox so it's not hitting your network and proliferating that way. 
That, that's right. That's right. And yeah, and you can, uh, this gives you a great point to protect against those malicious uh, supply chain attacks that I mentioned earlier. And so, um, you know, we, we call it firewall, like a repository firewall, mm-hmm. this idea of, um, of blocking those, uh, you know, sort of at that, at that border. So, well, first, let me ask a dumb question. I should know the answer to this, but is that how Log4j wasn't an open source attack, was it? Uh, it was not a malicious. Yeah, it was not this this sort of new style malicious attack. This was the log4j was the traditional. Somebody hey, there found was a vulnerability in open bug, source. Yeah, yeah. See, in, in this a is very why it widely me. used open source project. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so let's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's and it had been in. there for a long time. Yeah. So yeah. let's lean into log4j for a minute and talk to me about what agencies can do, what kind of tools. Um, yeah they can use to protect their software supply chain. And we don't have to stick with Log4j, but it will help my brain um, process if we kind of use that use case of what kind of tools you've seen successful for these agencies to discover Log4j. And I've been reading like some horrifying reports just that we're still, you know, there's still a lot of vulnerability even a year out there and maybe even like we'll never eradicate it completely. Is that true ever? Um, that's, yeah, I think that's, that's possible. You know, I mean, there's, <laughs> um, there's plenty of legacy software still running. You know, I, I hear, I hear reports of like, you know, windows 3.1 boxes still, still oh kicking around, God. you know, in a few places. Right. So you, you never like, you never completely get over old technology and, and that I imagine will apply yeah. to log4j as well, but you're right. We are like, even, even taking that into account, uh, we're farther behind from a remediation perspective than than would be ideal right now. And so we um Sonatype maintains Maven Central, which is the primary uh, repository for Java open source. Um, and log4j is hosted on Maven Central. And so we're able to see um how what versions of log4j are people downloading, you know, as they do builds, as they request um these wait, packages. Wait, what do you mean versions of log4j? Like they're downloading malicious code on purpose? Well, no. So when uh so Log4j is used all over the Java ecosystem. It's one of the most popular logging libraries and logging is a very important functionality. And so, yeah, everyone, you know, a whole bunch of Java projects, when you build them, they pull in some version of of Log4j. Do you know Um, what's sad, Stephen? I associate the name Log4j. Like, to me, that is the vulnerability, but it's not. It's the log library file? Yeah, yeah. so Log4shell was the name of the exploit. And Uh, so, um, yeah, and then it affected a certain version range of log4j. So versions between, you know, these, these uh, version numbers. And so what we see is most of the downloads are the patched secure version. um, But there's still about 30% of the downloads that are the vulnerable version. And so there's still a lot of people pulling that still. Why, why is it even available? So, um, this We've is crazy. That talk, question Steven. a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, people have said, "Why don't you just pull? You know, why don't you pull the uh, vulnerable versions?" Um, and you know, there, the problem with that is uh, it would it would break a lot of people's builds. It would go against sort of the um, the commitment uh, that these package repositories have, which is you know we will we will make the software available. It will continue to be available in the future if you pull the software into your build process and you're depending on the software's availability, like we won't break your build. We won't get in the way of that. Um, what you can do is 
I mentioned uh, having your own caching repository and having that layer where you can enforce policy there, you very much could say, okay, I'm not going to allow my developers to pull these versions of log4j period. Right. Sorry, I still don't understand why it's even a, a possibility. I know you just explained it. My head cannot process what you just said to me. Yeah. I mean, what's incredible is um, that there are still so many people downloading vulnerable versions of Log4j. Um, Like that vulnerability got more press than anything else in in recent memory, you know? And so the idea that there's people that still, I mean, it just shows that there's a lot of people that still don't know what's in their software, right? Because if you knew Log4j was in your software and you had heard about Log4j and everyone's heard about Log4j at this point, right? Like you you would have fixed it. And so um, I think there's just a lot of, um, a lot of people who are unaware of, you, of what's going on. Do you at least send yeah. it with a warning and say, hey, dummy, <laughs> do you realize <laughs> what you're downloading? <laughs> Yeah, there are like if you go to Maven Central and you look, uh, you know, at the component list, you look up various versions, see what you're using. Um, you know, there are notifications about known vulnerabilities, and and there are open source tools to scan, you know, vulnerabilities. Like you don't have to use a product like uh, like the products that Sonatype produces to um, to get a handle on this, right? There's open source uh, components that will let you scan your software, um, and you know, it, you were asking what. Uh, federal agencies can do to protect against this. Um, yeah. You know, that's that's a big part of it. Like there are tools out there. It's taking that step to make sure that all of your build pipelines, all your software development teams, you know, they are using these tools and scanning their software uh, to discover these vulnerabilities. And when they find something, those notifications go out in an appropriate way. Like you have a process for responding to those, you know? And so if it if it just like gives you a warning in some log file somewhere, like no one's going to pay attention to that, right? You need that message to go to someone who can make sure that it gets followed up on. Um, the other thing, so talking a bit more about log4j, like why was log4j such a scramble? Um, it was uh, it was this case where the vulnerability, like the patch for the vulnerability, was disclosed basically the same time that the world became aware of the error. So it, you know, it was. Um, not quite a zero day, like there was a patch for it when, mm-hmm. when it came out, but, um, but there was a big scramble. The community didn't have a lot of time to adopt that patch before, uh, exploit began. Um, and so it became this scramble to identify where am I using log4j? Um, and, and basically the way to be prepared for that is to already have this list of what's in your software. So we hear a lot about S bombs lately, mm-hmm. software builds a material, um, though these have gotten a lot of no- notice because, uh, there was a cyber executive order out of the white house a couple of years ago that mandated that, um, uh, agencies start producing guidance and regulations around requiring software that's sold to the federal government to ship with an, uh, S bomb. Um, and, and really the goal of that was to force organizations to, start paying attention to what's in their software. You know, I mentioned there's clearly a bunch of people who don't know what's in their software as evidenced by all these people downloading vulnerable versions of Log4j. <laughs> so like uh, step one, you know, I, I mentioned what you want to be doing is is finding out what's in your software and scanning that for vulnerabilities and having a process for remediating those, those vulnerabilities and everything. But step one is like, know what's in your software, right? So we're in terms of step one, um, producing these S-bombs and having a mechanism to inventory them and keep track of them and say, okay, you know, 
we have these thousand repositories supporting you know our application stack um here's the list of open source libraries that each of them uses you know we have some system where that's recorded um then if you have that and something like log4j comes out you can just go refer to that source and say okay show me all of these applications that include log4j and it's a very simple query and then the remediation might take time you know you got to go in and change the code update the version number and um and but build new versions and deploy these at least you know, yeah, you can immediately answer that question. Like, is this a problem for me? How big of a problem is it? How many, how much resourcing do I need to put uh, against this to to really address the risk? So I can't even manage like my own files on my desktop. <laughs> like I can't find stuff most of the time. Um, is it automated? Are S bombs automated? And and is there a way that like categories are created so mm-hmm. you even know where to start looking? Or yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So S bombs um, can be produced by basically all of these software composition analysis tools. Um, so we produce one of those called Lifecycle. You can export an S bomb from there. You can import S bombs. So if you get S bombs from third party software that you want to monitor, you can import those. What um, do you and mean import them. an S bomb? Because isn't an S bomb unique to the organization? Uh, it's unique to an application. So. If oh. your developers have some software they're developing, there will be an SBOM associated with that. If you are getting some software, like say, um, I don't know, Adobe Acrobat Reader, right? You know, like that's a software application that a lot of organizations use to view PDFs and, and print them and so forth. Um, there is some SBOM associated with that that says, here's the open source components that this application uses. And um, with the executive order around shipping SBOMs with software, um, we're starting to see more and more vendors make those SBOMs available or have a process for requesting them. Um, and so when something like log4j happens, like you, you really want to do two things. You want to identify where it occurs in your software stack, but then you also want to know which of these third-party applications I'm using are vulnerable. You know, do I need to go update, uh, my version of product X, Y, or Z, you know? And so there was, um, both of those things happened uh, at the same time when the world learned about Log4J. There was a whole bunch of internal conversations at every company and every government organization saying, are we vulnerable to this? How do we fix it? And then there were a whole bunch of phone calls being placed between businesses and the government and various suppliers and so forth saying, hey, the products I'm getting from you, are they vulnerable? What's your ETA on a fix? How do I deploy that fix? You know, And so um, SBOMs can help answer both of those questions. So if you have good SBOM hygiene, yeah, you could theoretically just say like, okay, this is me being an end user, like simple desktop end user, but like just do a quick search on show me everywhere the log4j is being used, like every application. And it can search your SBOM library and identify them. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And so, um, and that having that tooling in place makes a big difference. So we saw, um, customers who had like on the order of 2000 applications, um, remediate log for J in less than 30 days, um, at their organization, because they were able to immediately identify everywhere it occurred, prioritize remediation of those things, and then just work through that list. You know, you, at other places, if, places that weren't prepared for the, to answer these questions, you know, it took in some cases weeks just to identify everywhere we're log for J. Yeah. What do you do if you don't have good 
like if you don't have a comprehensive SBOM library, is that the right term? Yeah, sure. <laughs> then can you do a search my environment and show me everywhere and like map everywhere log4j is happening? What do you do? Yeah, I mean, you can, um, yeah, you, you can you can sort of do a scan. Uh, well, um, if you have, say, uh, GitHub, you use you know GitHub for all your repositories or GitLab or whatever. You know you can sort of go to your repository source and and start scanning through that. Um, and so that that's what companies that didn't have a solution in place already started doing. Um, it's just a a more it takes more time, right? And you know and especially in a large organization um, and a complex organization like you see you see some companies that, you know, they've grown via acquisition and there's actually like, you know, 10 different subunits and they all have their own technology stacks and everything like in that sort of environment, this let's just go scan everything idea becomes much more complex to implement. And so well, and I'm, yeah, I'm thinking yeah. about federal federal agencies that have contractors and yep. and so you're getting stuff from a lot of different places and you might not even have the ability or the visibility into their into their network. So are That's there right. like what's in place when, a, when an agency works with um, a contractor or a big integrator, I guess they have rules in place that says we need to have an S bomb for everything that you bring into our environment. That's certainly the direction it's going. Yeah. So the guidance from the executive order was yes, let's, we want to start writing into purchasing guidelines and so forth. And the, but the, wait, I, this wasn't in process. place before. People could bring stuff into your environment without really like just willy nilly. There, yeah, there wasn't a requirement that, that you ship an S bomb. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is why and, you're, uh, you have a job, right? Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, you know, like I, and yeah, it's like I said, this is step step one, you know, this isn't even where you want to get ultimately, right. The, um, we sometimes make the analogy that requiring S bombs for software, you know, like, yes, it's a good first step, but if you think about it in terms of, uh, other products that we're used to interacting with, you know, like cars, cars have a very complex supply chains, um, mm -hmm. with parts originating from various companies, getting assembled in various locations and ultimately coming together into this, this final product. Um, shipping an S-bomb with software is a bit like printing out that parts list and putting it in the glove box and saying, mm -hmm. okay, now, now you're good. You've, you've told everyone what's in your car. Um, but that's not really what we expect, right? We, what we expect is automakers to be, to be doing that and to have that inventory, that library of parts or whatever, and then be able to monitor those and say, oh, you know, we've noticed that this airbag has been failing more than we would expect. We need to go back and investigate that. Oh, we find out something's wrong with that part. Now we want to recall all the cars that use that part so that we can fix it and, and get out, you know, updates. Um, we would ideally, we want to be able to support that sort of recall process for software, right? You want to mm. be able to say when log4j comes out, um, notify your customers Right. Say we're pulling this from the market, you know, we're going to ship an update, we're going to, you know, and then, and then deliver that. And so that requires not just generating the S-bomb, but tracking it and continuously monitoring it. So the application owners, they identify a vulnerability, they are proactive reaching out to anybody that they know that's using that application that has like log4j in it. Then they reach out and say, this has happened. That yeah. 
Is that, I got that right. That's right. That's right. And, um, yeah. And some, you know, some regulations, proposed regulations do go in that direction. So like, um, the European union, uh, has been discussing the cyber resilience act, um, which is sort of their version, current version of SBOM legislation. And it does go, um, you know, in that, in that recall direction, which, which is good. You know, there's some other issues that they have to work out in terms of, um, getting the legislation to a place where, where it'll work for the market and for open source suppliers and everything. But like seeing that next step is, is nice. Mm. So if you could sum up like three best practices that you would give to government agencies specifically, or, or any organization really, um, well, I mean, that's yeah. it. What, what, what are your three tips that you wish organizations would do for security yeah. measures. Yeah. So my three tips, so one of them is uh, putting in place uh, code scanning technology that will let you uh, scan for open source vulnerabilities and, and having a process in place to, to act on those results. Um, I think the other two best practices, um, they get less attention because they're less directly tied to vulnerabilities and security risk are, first of all, being careful about your choice of components. So when you go to add a library to your application, you know, say you discover you need to uh, parse some JSON, you know, you have to access some JSON files and, and sort of act on them. Okay, you need a JSON parsing library. There's like five available. Which one should you choose? Uh, think about that choice, right? Which one uh, has better support? Maybe it's part of an open source found, uh, foundation. Um, which one has a larger, more active development team? Um, we have um, actually a, a community thing that we've put out there recently called the Sonar Type Safety Rating that that rolls up some of these. Um, uh, inf- yeah, so it takes information um, from the Open Source Security Foundation, uh, uh-huh. uh, something they call the scorecard, which is a list of best practices uh, that really all software projects should be implementing. And it tells you which ones, which ones they're implementing, you know, where are they on this journey? So towards our listeners sort of cool can, best practices. can Google this like Sonatype. What did you call it? Sonatype? Safety rating. Safety Sonatype rating. Safety they rating. can Google yeah. that and go find your safety rating. You've pulled all this information into one place for them. Yeah, that's right. We we just have it for Java right now. We're working on expanding that. But um, and actually, if you go to Maven Central and uh, search for a Java component, uh, if we have that information available, it'll it'll appear there. Um, and so you can see what that rating is. So Maven um, and, Central and yeah. Sonotype. Say it again. Safety rating. Safety. Yep. Safety rating. Sonotype yep. safety rating. Love that. So as you're talking through your tips, the buzzword of the day is coming to mind of zero trust. Is that a thing with um? open source, just applying a zero trust mentality. I mean, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. You're saying don't trust, you know, don't trust it. Check it yourself. That, that's right. Yeah. Don't just assume that it's secure, you know, that it's not going to cause problems. Be scanning it so you can detect issues. Um, also, I mentioned like um, release signing, making sure you're using signed releases. Like that's another way to uh, take a step back from just trusting that this jar file you got mm-hmm. is you know the correct one right um you want to you want to be verifying each step in the process um yeah and um the other best the third best practice that i'd mention is um just staying up to date generally so uh most of the vulnerabilities that is are disclosed are still this style where um there's been some 
vulnerability discovered that's been sitting in some project for a while. Someone finally, you know, looked at the right part of the code and identified this. Uh, and then there's a patch that's released and uh, and they give the community some time to adopt that patch. And then they just close the vulnerability, right? That's resp called responsible disclosure, right? You put out the patch, wait some time, and then disclose that there was a vulnerability. Um, and if you're just staying up to date generally, you'll naturally be adopting those fixes, right? And so when those advisories come out, um, you don't have any work to do because you've already acted. And the great thing about staying up to date is you can you can make that a planned proactive process and you can schedule it as part of your development time um, and instead of having everything be this reactive scramble so is it an can it be an automated thing like every day you just go pull down the latest stuff yeah it, it can be um certainly and um and there's tools you know dependency management tools that will automatically suggest pull requests to keep you up to date um and so that's a great, that's a great route to go. So to automatically finish. request updates, automatically check those updates. Is that a thing too? Yeah. So that, that is uh, like, it used to be that that was, I could just stop my advice there, <laughs> you know, stay up to date period. <laughs> um, but then with this new style of attack where like the latest version actually might have some malicious commit in it, um, you have to be a little bit more careful. And so um, now I, I guess I would layer onto that another bit of advice, which is um, have something sitting uh, at the at the border monitoring for those malicious commits. So, like I mentioned, a repository firewall is one is one app, uh, product there, one one solution there. But have something, you know, either either just if you're doing it manually, you know, keep up to date, but maybe don't use the latest version until it's been out there for a couple of weeks. You know, let let that vetting process take place. Or if you're doing it in an automated way, make sure you have automation around the update, but also around the monitoring for malicious code. Okay, so do a recap. We got four best practices here. Do 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 your recap for me. Sure. So um, be scanning your dependencies, your open source dependencies for vulnerabilities and have a process to act on those results. Um, be careful about what uh, projects you pick, you know, have a process for deciding which is going to be a better, easier to maintain, higher security component for the future. Um, and then uh, be staying generally up to date. Uh, and have some process for for doing that in a proactive way, uh, but also have some technology or process in place to guard against malicious commits. Got it. Okay. Good advice. So for our listeners, I'm going to mention those two resources that you brought up a couple of times, Maven Central and yep. Sonatype Safety Rating. Really good mm -hmm. uh, resources for our listeners. And then um, before I let you go, I'm going to do probably my favorite part of the show where I ask you tech talk questions, just quick, um, fun questions, uh, answered, you know, pretty quickly. So I'm going to start with, do you have, I'm looking at the, my list of questions. I need something new to read. <laughs> so help me build my reading list, Stephen. What do you read for fun? Like not a coding manual. Cause I'm not going to read that. Unless that's all you read. That's fair enough. I uh, know. No. no. <laughs> um, yeah, I read for fun. Um, I like sci-fi and fantasy. Um, so like I'm a big Stormlight Archives fan, uh, Brandon Sanderson in general uh, fan. Oh my gosh, I've I been... love him. Isn't he yeah. from Utah? Yeah. 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 So that's my home state. Oh, he's, cool. Yeah. My son, like when he was a kid, we followed him and he, he's been here. Like we, yes, big Brandon Sanderson fan. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've also been going back and rereading some like sci-fi classics. So like Stranger in a Strange Land, The Man Who Fell to Earth, you know, um, the sort of Heinlein, some Asimov Foundation, you know, that sort of thing. These are all series that I don't know about. And like I'm sci-fi is my jam. So mm. I will um dig into those. Have you heard of the Broken Earth series? No, I don't think I've read that. I one. will send you the link. It is so good. She won. It's a it's a three books and it's sci-fi fantasy. She won the Hugo Award three years in a row for each one of these books. Oh, cool. So all right. Okay. So next next question. Um if you could wave your technology magic wand and have anything you wanted and you're a sci-fi fan, so I know we can go big here. What would you like, you know, magic yeah. into existence? Yeah, I think, um, I, I guess I would say the Star Trek replicator thing. Um, <laughs> I've actually, I got a 3d printer recently and I've been having a lot of fun with that, which is, you know, I guess like a step in that direction, but you know, pretty, pretty far from the ultimate realization of that thing. It would be cool to actually have the thing. I agree. And I need to not know how things work theoretically sometimes because like my understanding is the port replicator like rips you apart at the molecular level and then reconstructs you on the other side. That sounds really not pleasant. But yeah, they all didn't yeah. seem to mind, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely best not to think about it. I, th I think there were some times where uh, it didn't work properly. And so uh, yes, that, that wasn't exactly. great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, all right. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for being part of Tech Transforms and for, I mean, being patient and giving me the one-on-one on open software. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's been really fun. And thanks to our listeners. Please like and share this episode and we will talk to you on Tech Transforms next week. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. For more Tech Transforms, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. 